On this week's edition of New York Now, gun violence prevention is about more than guns. We'll look at New York State's efforts to address violence from a public health perspective. JCOPE, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, is gone. We'll talk with one of the New York Law School deans tasked with vetting its replacement. And we'll dig into this week's news with Marina Villeneuve of the Associated Press and Jimmy Bielkind from the Wall Street Journal. I'm Casey Seiler, and this is New York Now. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Casey Seiler, editor-in-chief of the Times Union, in for Dan Clark. In the summer of 2021, New York became the first state in the nation to declare gun violence a public health emergency. Along with that declaration came the creation of a state office of gun violence prevention, housed under the Department of Health. Since then, Governor Kathy Hochul's 2023 state budget allocated $227 million to fund a comprehensive approach to gun violence prevention. After the tragic mass shooting in Buffalo and the Supreme Court's overturning of New York's law limiting guns in public places, access to guns has been a hot topic for policymakers and in news headlines. But this week, we shift the focus back to the public health aspects of reducing gun violence in New York State. Take a look. This street, Six and Glen, is significant to me because, number one, I'm from these streets. And my, but 2020, June, my son got shot right here on these streets, six bullets, but he survived it. My name is Veronica Roundtree. Everyone call me Mama Love. Okay, we're gonna be, I, I love you, I love you so much. And I am the founder of Mothers to Sons. Mothers talk to your sons about gun violence. For the most part, us mothers, we know what our kids are doing. So we need to talk to our sons about these guns to save their lives. We gotta save ourselves and our kids. For Veronica Roundtree, a.k.a. Mama Love in Troy, New York, the prevalence of gun violence isn't only about guns. She sees a connection between a rise in gun violence and a decline in resources and support for her community. What they got going on in our communities is drug infestation, high in crime, lack of education, lack of resources. There's nothing for our children to do. There's no place for them to go. We have the boys club. That's all we got. It's a 16-year-old death. I've been trying to reach out to his mom, um, but I understand they got the three guys out of Virginia, so justice will get served for this kid's horrible murder. So this is what this is what happened. This is on every block, everywhere you go in our little city. We ain't gonna have no kids left. In the past several years, organizations like the Centers for Disease Control and the American Medical Association have been advocating that violence be seen as a public health issue and not simply a public safety issue. New York State is taking a similar position where gun violence prevention still involves law enforcement, but expands far beyond that. We realize that gun violence affects kind of the whole community and that it's traumatic, that the trauma spreads, right, to victims and friends and loved ones, that it takes a while to recover. And so that's what we mean when we talk about gun violence being a public health crisis, that it's not just about law enforcement, but it's about how do we use these programs, right, that we call violence interruption programs like SNUG, how do we use them to make communities whole? 
In New York's 2023 budget, Governor Hochul allocated $227 million towards a comprehensive approach to gun violence prevention. The funding is divided between law enforcement and community-based programs. Hochul's efforts follow declarations made in 2021 by the New York State Executive Branch that gun violence be considered a public health emergency. In fact, violent gun deaths increased by 80 percent between 2019 and 2020 and remained elevated in 2021. People lost their jobs. They lost their safety net. They lost their support systems where they couldn't go get substance abuse treatment or mental health treatment. People fell through the cracks in unprecedented ways during this pandemic. And we need to be sensitive to that and realize that that is not an excuse to harm another human being, but it's also what is going on in their lives and in their communities that we need to help them heal. You know, we know how to solve these problems because right before the pandemic, we were at an all time low in crime in not just in New York, right, but across the country. In the process, we've learned a lot. We've learned how to bring everyone to the table. We've learned how to bring law enforcement and community folks to the table. We've learned how to treat everyone like human beings. Um, And we're, you know, we're trying to put the results of all that learning back to work. A lot of people are saying that you're never going to get the guns off the streets. You're never going to be able to change this community. These kids are doomed. These kids are going to die. And I say, that's a lie. We're going to come up with solutions. That's the word of the day, solutions. We just got to figure out a way to talk to our sons. The main thing that we really need is for so many kids that something for them to do. Food, clothing, and shelter, mental health. Um, We need to be able to sustain this mother-to-son organization and be able to pull people in and give them jobs. it's It's a fight. It's a fight that you have to constantly stay in. We just pray. We just pray for peace worldwide. Worldwide peace. New York's position on gun violence and access to guns continues to evolve. On July 1st, Governor Hochul introduced new gun legislation to replace the law overturned by the Supreme Court. That law, which limits the possession of firearms in so-called sensitive places, is already being challenged in court. But now to this week's news, where I'm happy to be joined at the Reporters' Roundtable by Marina Villeneuve of the Associated Press and Jimmy Vilkind from The Wall Street Journal. Thanks very much for coming in. All right, so let's talk about the departure of Chief Judge Janet DeFiore. After about six and a half years in office, former Westchester County prosecutor, former chairwoman of the aforementioned Joint Commission on Public Ethics, appointed by Governor Cuomo at the end of 2015, took office at the beginning of 2016, and in a surprise announcement, leaving at the end of August. I think that there are, there are a couple of reasons that played into her departure, and according to my reporting. One is that she has been pushing for a court consolidation plan to take New York's 11 trial court parts and basically consolidate them into two, a Supreme Court and some sort of a lower court. And that really failed to gain traction this year during the legislative session. That's something that people said she put a lot of time and effort into, and it was essentially sort of floating in the water. Not dead, but but certainly not steaming along. Uh, 
her, of course, biggest rabbi was former Governor Andrew Cuomo, who appointed her in 2016 when she was the Westchester County District Attorney. But she really soured uh, her relationship with legislators, many of them said, when she ruled in April about the legislative and congressional district lines. DeFiori, for viewers who might not remember, ruled that the lines violated a constitutional anti-gerrymandering provision, but that the legislature could not be trusted to take another crack at this process, that it should be remanded to a lower court who appointed a special master to draw the maps. So she had a macro problem in terms of her political support. And then on top of that, the Wall Street Journal and other outlets reported that she was the subject of a judicial conduct commission probe at the time of her resignation. Uh, according to people familiar with, with the matter that my colleague Corinne Remy and I spoke with, uh, the commission voted in June to issue a formal written complaint against Judge DeFiori uh, related to a letter she sent to a disciplinary hearing officer who was uh, weighing a disciplinary charge against the head of the court officers union, a guy named Dennis Quirk. Uh, so DeFiori and Quirk had sort of a long-running spat, uh, and the letter had some very stark language wherein Judge DeFiori essentially urged the hearing officer to throw the book at Quirk. Very thumb-on-scale language, without a doubt. Yes, it, it was not subtle, <laughs> we shall say. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, Janet DeFiore is headed out the door. This sets up, of course, an opportunity for Governor Hochul to put her own stamp on the court in a in a pretty big way. Chief judges uh, don't come along every year, certainly. The average length of time for service is about six, five to seven years, I guess, with the exception being Judith Kay, who served for, for much longer, more than a decade. Um, so, Maria, this sets up uh, a, a classic sort of progressive versus centrist option for the governor. Is that right? Right. Um, at this point, um uh, after uh, Governor Hochul's new nomination, she'll have been she'll have picked two out of seven of the members of um, the Court of Appeals, with five being appointed by Cuomo. Um, there's long there's been a lot of analysis about what the courts looked like under DeFiori. Um, we've seen like the number of criminal appeals drop dramatically, so we're hearing a lot of calls from criminal justice reform groups and legal aid groups um, for the governor to use this opportunity to pick a public defender um, or um, yeah, and someone from an underrepresented background to really try to tilt um, the court uh, in a different direction. Um, but obviously, the governor is running for a fourth term, so she's going to be facing um, pressure uh, as well to perhaps go more moderate, especially when she's getting so much uh, uh, criticism over uh, from Republicans and more moderate members of her party over crime uh, rates in the state. Her nominee will have to be approved by the state Senate, which means that it's quite likely that we'll get uh, another extraordinary session uh, where they'll come back and have to question and then vote on that nominee, correct? That's right. And the way the process works is there's first a commission on judicial nomination that will um, hear and, and vet various candidates and then presents the governor with a list of people from, from which she will make her selection. Uh, historically, these Senate confirmations 
Republicans have not been particularly contentious. Uh, there were several no votes over the appointment in 2021 of former Nassau County District Attorney Madeline Singus. That was, of course, Andrew Cuomo's pick for a seat on the Court of Appeals that he did sort of while he was under significant pressure um, and during the period in which his his gubernatorial tenure was coming under lots of stress because of the investigations of his handling in the pandemic, as well as uh, his grappling with accusations of sexual harassment. So we heard some dissent in the state Senate then from some of the more progressive members. Uh, I think it remains to be seen whether there will be significant dissent and also whether Governor Hochul will be mindful of that when she makes her selection. All right, let's move on to the topic of guns and ongoing blowback to the legislation recently passed and signed into law by the governor. Carl Palladino, the singular, I think, would be the, the most, uh, the, the lowest level adjective I could pick, uh, congressional candidate out in western New York who's locked in a primary battle with Nick Langworthy, the chair of the state party has announced that he is going to bring suit against aspects of the new gun law. Correct? Right. Uh, it's a federal lawsuit, and it's taking aim specifically at part of the law that um, will say for a business, uh, any business that wants to allow concealed carry will have to affirmatively put up a sign saying, essentially, guns are welcome here. Um, and he's saying that that's um, going too far and infringing on Second Amendment rights by um, requiring businesses to do so. Um, the governor, for her part, has said that she's confident this will hold up in court. I've spoken with um, uh, experts from gun control groups like Giffords and Brady, and they've pointed to um, there being legal precedent for this, perhaps, in um, based just, just looking at private property rights. And in some localities nationwide, um, there are um, requirements saying that you have to like alert a private property owner if you're going to be bringing guns on the property. So um, we'll have to see. Meanwhile, Carl Palladino, uh, <laughs> it seems like every couple of weeks there's another one of these. This time out, it was reported that he has a registered uh, sex offender, somebody convicted almost a decade ago uh, of possessing child pornography, who is serving not only in his private business interests, but also as, I believe, assistant treasurer on his campaign, which is, I believe, what we call an unforced error in politics. Yeah, the Palladino campaign said that this person just appeared on a document and is not formally affiliated with the campaign. It's unclear. It seems that the individual in question had granted money to Palladino's political efforts, as you noted, worked for uh, Ellicott Development, the company that he founded uh, and that is now managed and run by his son. You know, this is a nasty campaign that Carl Palladino finds himself in. Nick Langworthy, who is the principal opponent in the Republican nomination for this congressional seat that had been held by Chris Jacobs, uh, he's sharp. And so this is going to be very bare-knuckled. What is what is an open question for me is whether any of this is going to resonate with the GOP electorate and whether it's going to, to matter. Um, Carl Palladino, uh, Casey, we've been talking about Carl Palladino for well over a decade at this point. About, and about 13 years it, now. It should not be a surprise to any viewer or any voter that Carl Palladino has some rough edges, Carl Palladino is not politically correct, uh, that Carl Palladino has some sort of pushing the envelope 
envelope associations and statements that he makes. And voters have, to use a market term, they've priced that in. That is part of his appeal. And so I don't know the extent to which this kind of revelation or other revelations that will come out, of course, in, a, in, in the course of a uh, vigorous campaign are going to impact him. I also have no idea who's going to vote in an August special election for Congress. Yeah, the, very so. few people uh, one imagines. So, all right, well, that's where we're going to have to leave it. Thanks very much to Marina Vilnerv of the Associated Press and Jimmy Vilkind of the Wall Street Journal. Great to see you. In January, Governor Hochul announced a plan to replace the Joint Commission on Public Ethics after acknowledging Jacob had failed to live up to its mandate. Jacob's replacement came into being on July 8th as the Commission on Ethics and Lobbying in Government. In order to ensure independence, appointees to the new Commission on Ethics will be vetted by a team of 15 deans from New York's accredited law schools. David Lombardo from the Capitol Press Room spoke to Dean Anthony Crowell, who is chair of the group charged with managing the vetting process. Welcome to the show, Dean Crowell. Thanks so much, David. It's good to join you. So you're one of 15 law school deans uh, responsible for vetting the 11-member commission that's going to be our new state internal watchdog. How are you going to judge uh, the nominees that come from the legislative leaders and the statewide elected officials? So I'd like to sort of describe the process as one not of judgment, but one of a sound review that looks at a comprehensive uh, picture of the candidate in light of the uh, qualifications that they possess and the needs of the state in terms of an ethics commissioner uh, who has the ability to uh, navigate a, a range of functions um, and to understand the complexities of an incredibly diverse uh, public workforce. So uh, we, will, we will certainly uh, give a careful review, but the first rung of, uh, of, of that review will be um, a very, very rigorous pre-nomination process that we will have put in place, putting a, a level of accountability on the elected officials who will nominate uh, these candidates um, to really look deeply into their backgrounds, to understand um, uh, their qualifications and to make a determination that is informed, including by public input, um, uh, before they actually give us the formal nomination to review in full. So there's uh, there are several layers to the process, um, and and we will certainly make sure uh, that the procedures we've established are followed, and then we'll make sure that the people who get appointed. Uh, possess the requisite qualifications and have uh, the requisite abilities to uh, perform uh, well in their role as a state ethics commissioner. Well, what are those uh, abilities that uh, the nominees uh, should contain? Sure. Well, first and foremost, we're going to ensure that the nominees are of undisputed honesty, integrity, and character. We certainly want to look to the professional conduct of of the candidates to uh, ensure that they have uh, conducted themselves with the highest, eth highest ethical standards and that their lived experience allows them to understand uh, the range of perspectives that are needed to effectively serve as a member of the State Ethics Commission. Um, in addition, we want to see candidates who 
um, have a demonstrated ability to be impartial and fair, independent, even-handed, and who can decide matters based solely on the law and facts that are, pretend, uh, that are presented and not on politics. Are there any disqualifying factors for potential candidates? For example, if someone worked for or worked closely with someone who's getting nominated and someone who might be under the scrutiny of this new uh, watchdog, uh, would they be automatically disqualified? That would not be an automatic disqualification. Uh, but we'd want to certainly know that and we'd want to talk to the candidates. So once the, um, once the pre-nomination process has, has concluded and um, the elected officials who make the appointments have decided who they're going to formally uh, submit to us for review, um, we will then start not only, not only review the record that they made that decision on, but we will conduct our own interviews of those candidates as well. And those interviews will work to understand um, uh, those relationships that they might have with those who appointed them, but also their ability to be independent. Um, those who may have prior state service, even with wor working with public officials, may have a perspective that is valuable. But we do want to understand uh, their ability to use independent judgment and to be fair and even-handed and not be political in the process of making determinations uh, consistent with the state ethics laws. Ideally, uh, because you've laid out the criteria you're looking for, you know, honesty, integrity, the, the nominating bodies are going to take that into account when choosing who they want to serve on this commission. And theoretically, there won't be any problems with anyone they uh, put up. But theoretically, there also could be some candidates who just don't pass uh, whatever smell test that you and your fellow deans uh, end up uh, implementing. So if there are candidates that you deem aren't worthy, uh, what ends up happening? Do you essentially send them back to uh, the, the nominator and say, no good, try again? So the Independent Review Committee, in effect, stands as a body that um, is, is undertaking an advice and consent process. Um, and what we will do is we will make a determination as to whether or not um, the nominee should be confirmed for appointment. Uh, ultimately, the elected official who makes the nomination is the one who will appoint, but we'll undertake this confirmation process. If we determine that the candidate is not fit for service on the State Ethics Commission, we will send it back to uh, the nominating elected official and ask them to reconsider other options and to resubmit uh, someone else. Now, I like talking to you. I'm sure your students think you're great, but for everyone else in New York who might not have a chance to know you or know the other law school deans who are making up this independent review committee, what would you tell to those New Yorkers about why law school deans make for a good vetting body? So law school deans um, obviously uh, have a significant role with uh, the profession. We are stewards of the profession. We uh, train new lawyers. We, we undertake management of uh, uh, very significant programs of legal education. And um, an extraordinary number of the lawyers in New York State have come through uh, our law schools. Um, so we have an understanding of the requisite ethical standards, professionalism, uh, and um, the uh, expectations of those who uh, trust those in public service in our state. Um, deans make a good choice. 
uh, we're not the only ones who could potentially do this job, but I think that we um, we do have uh, that understanding of, of a high ethical standard and uh, the level of professionalism, accountability, independence, objectivity, all those things that make up uh, a, a good lawyer, make up a sound judiciary, and uh, make for responsible government. Uh, and so um, that is our function as stewards of this profession and those who protect, promote, defend the, uh, the rule of law. Well, finally, what's the status of your work right now? Sure, so uh, right now, um, we have a backgrounding process that is underway. Um, what happens is we have um, the state police as well as investigators from the State Office of General Services who are doing background investigations on the candidates um, that are identified for them by the different elected officials. Those elected officials include uh, the governor, the state attorney general, the comptroller, uh, and the majority and minority leadership of both the Senate and uh, the Assembly. And I will say that um, right now, uh, I understand that um, there are a good number that are making their way through that backgrounding process. And I would expect as of, uh, as of today, I would expect very soon that we will see uh, some of those elected officials uh, publish the names of those they are contemplating nominating uh, and uh, upon that publication will be uh, the opportunity for uh, public comment. I expect good government groups to make comments, members of, uh, of bar associations and uh, citizens uh, and other, other civic organizations uh, comment on, on the reputation and the strength of the candidates presented. Well, we've been speaking with Anthony Crowell. He is the chair of the state's independent review committee and dean of New York Law School. Anthony, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dave. Good to see you. It remains to be seen whether the new Ethics Commission will live up to its standards of integrity and independence. Like its predecessor, Jacob, committee appointees will still come from the high-ranking lawmakers they are tasked with monitoring. And that's it for this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.